this moment together in remembering this, this meal that the disciples observed with Jesus on the night of his arrest, his betrayal, we share together in the fellowship with those who have gone before us. And so even now, in a, in a moment of prayer, mindful of the fact that what we do together as we gather and we worship is not just about us. It's not just gathering to make ourselves feel better. It's not just coming together so that you get a good word that I hope to deliver a good word today. And to the extent that I'm going to point us to the scripture, it is a good word, truly. But the point of this isn't about us. It doesn't center upon us that somehow we are the end. No, we're just a part of something much greater that God has done. And we are welcomed in as sons and daughters. And so together, in a moment of celebration, but also in a moment of sincere worship. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, giving him thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus that paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and set free. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful that you made a way for us that we might be forgiven and set free, that we might be redeemed from our sin given new life in Jesus. This is what we celebrate together in this moment, Lord. That you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you've given freely to us out of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we honor you, we praise you, and even now, as we study your word, we ask that you would move in our hearts and our lives shape our understanding, shape our faith that we might know and follow you, Jesus. All this we ask in your name. Amen. As we continue in our time of worship this morning, we're going to move to Luke chapter 15. That's where I'm going to be preaching from this morning, the text itself, Luke chapter 15. Because today is the day that one of, one of the, the days that we... we typically observe the Lord's Supper together. The kids will stay with us in worship today, and I'm excited for them to be here and be a part of our worship rather than releasing them for kids' crew. They stay with us today, and we'll study together in Luke chapter 15. Now, as we, as we dig into Luke chapter 15, I want to talk just briefly about a book that I read some years ago that has informed my understanding of this particular text in a way that is just um, indispensable, I, I would say. So pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book many years ago, and the title of the book is The Prodigal God. And I read this book some years ago. Now I'll have you know that in studying for the message today, I didn't reference the prodigal God at all. I never even cracked it open, but it has so shaped the way that I see this particular parable of Jesus that, I mean, I can't, I can't separate the two, right? I mean, I can't undo what, what the Lord has done in my heart through reading this, and I would commend it to you as an excellent read. In fact, it's a rather short book as far as books go, and you could read this in one setting if you had a mind to. Uh, if, if you, and, and it's that, I think, compelling that if you start reading it, you might be drawn to. So uh, I would encourage you, if you haven't read this before, to pick up a copy to read. If you want to borrow mine, you're welcome to do that. The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. 
Because in that, he points us to see the real significance of the text that we're going to study today. The story of the prodigal son, right? The son who ran away in sin and rebellion and the father that welcomed him in. We're going to study this together from Luke chapter 15. And so let's read together beginning in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, and of course, the he there is a reference to Jesus. If you read the rest of Luke 15, you pick that context up. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he would received him back safe and sound. But he was hungry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. and All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In Luke chapter 15, we have three different stories that Jesus tells that are each one in their own unique way about something that was lost and was later found. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then this, perhaps one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the parable of the lost son, the story of the prodigal son, the son who squandered his father's inheritance on his sin and his waywardness and yet was welcomed in. But what I want us to see It's not just a story of a prodigal son, but it's also a story of a prideful son and a father who lovingly shows mercy and grace on both. 
this morning. So there are three characters that we're introduced here. The first two we'll consider together, but also sort of in contrast with one another. And so the first character is the lost little brother. The lost little brother. Truly the wayward son here, right? The prodigal himself. The one who squanders his father's kindness, his father's generosity. In fact, when we're introduced to this son, verse 11, we're introduced to his selfishness. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Several interesting things happening here. First of all, if you know some of the, if you know some of the culture of the day, then you understand that as the younger of two sons, this son deserved to receive a portion of his father's estate when his father passed, but the older brother would receive the greater portion. And so this is a practice that was referred to as primogeniture. Primogeniture means that the eldest born son is, is the one who receives the greater part of the inheritance. And so typically the practice was that the, the oldest would receive more than half, would receive more than half. And this being the case where there are, where there are two sons, at least two that we're aware of in this story, the younger son stood to receive up to a third of his father's property when his father passed, and the older son would have inherited the remaining two-thirds. And, and really, with the inheritance would have come titles, would have come land, would have come any other responsibilities of nobility or things of that sort that might have been passed down. That would have gone to the older son. In, in the day and time and in the practice. And so the younger son, who evidently is sort of the, the, the wayward one, the prodigal, the partying son, there are so many titles we could put on him here, comes to the father. But what's interesting is not only does he say to his father, I want you to give me what is mine. Now consider that for a moment. Give me what is mine. Was it truly the son's yet? No, this is the plain answer, right? The father remains alive. The father is still living. This is, this is the father's property. The father's, how many parents have, have said to their children something before? You know, the, the kids will say something about, well, my this or my that. And you're like, well, actually, no, that's mine, right? That's my cell phone that you're, that's my car that you're driving. That's my, you know, right? Parent, we use this, right? We use this. This is a strategy that parents use. Kids, you know it. And trust me, someday you're going to use it too. But the son says to the father, give me what is mine. And so the father divides his property. Now, it's not just emptying out his bank account because there wouldn't have been a bank in the sense that we understand a bank in this day and time. There would have been some form of currency likely, but in all likelihood, the, the lion's share of their worth would have been tied up in things like property or business. And yet the father liquidates a third of all that he has in order that he might give this wayward son, this sinful, self-indulgent son, that he might give him of his, of his inheritance, of, of his property. In fact, the word that's used in the Greek language in verse 12, he divided his property between them. The word that's used there in Greek is the word bios. 
And you may be familiar with the word bios because it sounds like our word biology. And in fact, that's where we get the word biology. Biology is the study of life, right? And so the father doesn't just divide up his property, as it were. He divides up his life, in a sense. Now consider the weight of that. Let that sit with you for a minute. Because effectively what the son has done is he said, Dad, I'd rather have your things than you. Dad, you're as good to me as dead. I don't want a future relationship with you. I'm not going to be around when you die someday. I'm ready to cut ties and move on. Give me what's mine. Give me what's coming to me so that I can go and do what I want. What a selfish, what a greedy thing for this son to say. Most parents would have just simply responded with, no, <laughs> right? No. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? And yet in the story that Jesus is telling, amazingly, the father responds to his son's request. How this must have broken the father's heart. How this must have pained him to see his son wonder in waywardness. So much so that the question that it naturally, the sort of the story sort of naturally begs is why would a loving father do this? Why would a lo- loving father do this? Now Jesus never resolves that tension fully for us, but if you're feeling that tension, if you're asking that question, then you're tracking exactly as Jesus' original audience would have. Because Jesus' original audience would have understood that such a request was ridiculous. In fact, in the culture of the day, it's likely that not only would the father have told him no, but he would have turned him away with some form of physical physical uh, punishment. I mean, maybe literally blows, maybe, maybe the backhand, that sort of thing as a way of saying, absolutely not. What a disrespectful, self-indulgent, what a wicked thing to ask of me. And it's that wickedness that we see highlighted, but it gets worse because after a period of time, the son has squandered everything. Not only did he receive this inheritance and then go make good on it, but he squanders it, all of it, wastes it, wastes it away on wayward, wanton living to the point that now he's working in the field, feeding the pigs, wishing for what the pigs were eating. I don't know if you've ever seen what pigs eat, but it's not the sort of thing that would entice most any of us. It's not the sort of thing that we would say, oh, yum, it, it's, it's slop, we might refer to it. In some instances, it's almost more akin to like compost, almost. I mean, pigs will eat anything. And here this son is living among the pigs, wishing. And so it's from that sense of desperation that he realizes how destitute he's become. He realizes the, the, the great folly of his sin, and he devises a scheme that he will go back to his father and he will beg to be a servant in his father's house. Not a son, because he had, he had thrown that away, but a servant. He would beg to be a servant in his father's house. And yet, when he returns, what do you notice about the story? First of all, the father sees him while he's at a distance. What a striking piece of information that Jesus has included. What, what incredible detail here that we see that 
not only does the father receive him, but the father is waiting expectantly. And so when he sees this wayward son at a good distance, while he sees him far off, he runs to him, throwing aside his pride, throwing aside his dignity, which he's already sacrificed so greatly for this lost little brother. The father runs to his son and embraces him. And the son has devised a scheme, right? Keller refers to it in his book as his business plan. He begins to tell his dad his business plan, right? Dad, so here's the thing, dad. If I know that I blew it, I know that I messed up, I'm asking you for, if you would just let me be one of your servants. And the father will hear nothing of it. Hush, forget that. Go, find a robe and put it on him. Find a ring, put it on his finger. Kill the fattened calf, which is representative of the the choicest of all that his father had. Kill that. Let's throw a great feast. Let's throw a celebration because my son was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a remarkable thing that this father welcomes home the self-indulgent, sinful, lost little brother. But that's not the only brother that we're introduced to. We're also introduced to the older brother, or as we're going to refer to him, the bitter big brother. The bitter big brother. Because as we keep reading, we see that the older son was in the field. He came near the house. He saw the party that was taking place. He called for one of his servants, and he says to one of his servants, what's going on? What's the meaning of all of this? And the servant says, your father is throwing a party. And the older son is indignant about this. The older son is, to say that he is upset is putting it mildly. He's furious about the situation. He's indignant by all of this, so much so that he refuses to partake. And not only does he refuse to partake, but he refuses to acknowledge his brother's brother's position, his brother's Uh, rights which he had given away. He refuses to acknowledge him even as a brother. Notice what he says in verse 30 when the father confronts him. When this son of yours came who devoured your property, this son of yours, which is to say, this is no brother of mine. This sinful, self-indulgent one that, that you call a son that you're celebrating, This is no brother of mine. I want nothing to do with him. And in his own way, by not entering into the party, by refusing to participate with the father's gifts of grace, the older brother, in his own way, rejects the father. In his own way, the older brother turns his back on the father. Here's an interesting question. And really, understanding this question, the answer to this question, is really key to understanding the parable, okay? So the key question is this. Of the two sons, which son is lost? Which son is really lost? Now, it's easy to look at the younger son and say, well, this son is lost. The story even says the father makes this statement twice in the story. My son was lost, and now he's found. But when you really understand what's happening with the older brother, you see that the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother is. The bitter big brother is just as wayward, just as hardened in his heart as was the lost little brother. And that's the point 
of the story that Jesus is telling. That's the point that we so often miss. Now, earlier in Luke chapter 15, I saved this detail for now, okay? But earlier, if you turn back to the first verse of Luke 15, you see in context the audience that Jesus is sharing this story with. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. For the sake of this story, let's just equate the tax collectors and sinners with the lost little brother. These are the sinful ones who have wandered away. These are the ones who everyone would recognize the depth of their depravity. Everyone would recognize what great sinners they were. But then he also, we see this, that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So the Pharisees and scribes were there as well. And again, for the sake of this story, the Pharisees and the scribes are indicative of the bitter big brother. These are the religious ones. These are the ones who did everything right. They followed the law. They kept the rules. They, they, they towed the line. If, if, it were, if it were something that could be done that was honorable and upright and forthcoming, they had done it to the letter of the law, we might say. And yet, these same ones were just as lost as the sinners and the tax collectors because their hearts were hardened from God's grace. And before we go on and consider the father, the third character in the story, I want to pause here and let's just identify that in a, in a broad and a sweeping way, okay, all of us in the room fit one of these two profiles. Some are sort of the, you fit the profile of the, the prodigal son, the, the lost little brother. Some in the room, some of us fit the story of the one who has wandered in great wickedness and great sin. And your rebellion and, and the wake of your, of your sin is clear to see. And you read this story and you find hope in the grace of a loving father who welcomes his son in, as well you should, because praise God, that's who we serve. A God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God who welcomes us with open arms, a God who stands at a distance waiting for the day that we would turn our hearts to him. But I also want to be mindful of the fact that in the room there are others who are the bitter big brother. This is the part that you play, so to speak. Because you don't have the story of all the sin, and you aren't the, you aren't the party-going, wayward type. You were the one that did all the things right. And the reason, in fact, that Keller's book speaks so to me is because in so many ways, I'm the big brother. I'm the one, I'm the one that did all the things right. I was young when I came to know Christ. I've lived by anyone's standard a really moral and, 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 and good life. And yet what I come to understand is that against a loving God, I've hardened my heart. I've hardened my heart. I see, sadly, the remnants, the, the evidences of the big brother's bitterness to, to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean that I would identify with everything in the story, that it, and, and maybe perhaps you wouldn't either, but nonetheless, you understand the point, right? So often we read this and we think that this is a story for sinners who ran away. And, and we stop short of the true 
teaching, the truest understanding when we make the story just about the sinners who return home. Now, to be clear, it is very much a story about the sinner who can return home to a loving father ready to embrace them. Let's not miss that fact. This is, in so many ways, we see a a beautiful picture of God's grace in this story. And yet, there's another character that we need not miss as well. Because the same God who welcomes the sinner welcomes the self-righteous big brother who thought that he had done everything right, who thought he was deserving of grace, who sinned against his father in his pride in his own way. And yet God willingly welcomes us just as this father welcomes his older son in as well. And so the third character then is the forgiving father, the forgiving father. The father who forgives. He forgives the waywardness of his younger son just as he forgives the bitterness of his older son. Look at what the father says to him. This is so important. Verse 31. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this your brother, he reminds the older brother, this, he's still your brother. No matter what he's done, he's still your brother. This, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the beauty of this story is that God in his grace and in his mercy welcomes us in as sons and daughters. God, in, his, in, the, in the richness of his forgiveness, God welcomes both the lost little brothers and the bitter big brothers among us. The self-indulgent and the self-righteous equally have a place at the Father's banquet feast because it's the Father has welcomed them in. He's welcomed us in. He's welcomed you that you might find forgiveness and mercy. Which son is lost? The, the answer is they both are. And yet the father willingly forgives him. You see, when, there's, when we're lost, there's only one way to be found. And that is repentance. That's the path of repentance and contrition, the path of humility, the path of humbling ourselves before God. It's so clear to see that the younger brother was humbled by his, by his sin and had to humble himself. And yet, what I don't want you to miss is how the older brother must also humble himself to receive as a brother this one who had sinned so greatly against both he and his father. To receive again this this loved one, but then also to embrace a father who would willingly welcome back a prodigal. When we're lost, the only way to be found is is to turn around and run to the father, to turn back to the father. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of invitation, and we're going to sing a song that was written to remind us of this story. It's a song we've sung before, a song we sing uh, in, in a worship song that is entitled, Run to the Father. And even in the words of the song, we're going to sing, So I run to the Father, fall into grace. It's a song about how we turn our hearts back to the Lord. Even as we sing those words this morning, I wonder, would you be willing 
to turn your heart back to the forgiving Father. Maybe you're here and you've wandered in sin so plainly like like the lost little brother. And you recognize that you've wandered off in sin, rebellion, and self-indulgence. And today, you recognize that you need salvation. You need the Father's forgiveness. You need to be welcomed back into the arms of a loving Father. Can I tell you that He's ready to receive you? Just as this Father stood waiting for His Son to return, our Heavenly Father waits longingly for you to return to Him. Would you turn your heart to him today? Would you turn from your sin and turn to the forgiving father as savior? He's ready to welcome you in, to forgive you, to transform you through the power of his exorbitant, his lavish grace and mercy. And so as we sing that song, we would invite you to step into the aisle, to come forward. But maybe, maybe you're here and, and you don't identify with the lost little brother, but rather the bitter big brother. Can I tell you, the bitter big brother was just as lost as the little brother was. And if that's you today, apart from the grace of the forgiving father, you are just as lost. Would you be willing today to turn your heart to the Lord, to receive his forgiveness, to humble yourself by returning to a loving father who's ready to embrace that which was lost and is found? And so even as we sing, if that's you, we would encourage you, make your way forward. If you're ready to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, even as we sing this morning, we would encourage you that you would come. Would you bow your head with me now and close your eyes as we prepare to move into this time of invitation? And after I'm done praying, then we're going to stand and begin to sing together. And even while we sing, if God's moving in your heart, then we would encourage you that you would come. God, we thank you that you are the forgiving Father who welcomes us home, who embraces us with open arms. Lord, there's nothing that we have done, nothing we could do that would change your love for us. What an amazing thought that is. Lord, what an undeserved truth that you welcome and receive sinners. This morning, if there's anyone in our presence who's never surrendered their heart to you, any wayward son who's never come to you in faith, I pray that this would be the day that they would become your child by returning to you. But Lord, we recognize that it's not just the, the, the great rebellious lost little brothers, as it were, who are, it's also the, the bitter big brothers among us, those who in self-righteousness have hardened our hearts. And Lord, We pray that this morning your spirit would convict us, soften our hearts, move in us, that we might turn from the hardness of heart, perhaps, that has blinded us to our sin and surrender our lives to you. So move in us as we respond to your grace, Jesus, we pray. Amen.